Welcome to Grant Seeker Coffee Talks, a podcast for nonprofits to listen and learn from their peers. In this episode, we're learning about applying for federal grants. Our presenter is Julie Asel. Julie has awarded grants totaling more than $100 million since 2003, writing both federal and foundation grants. She currently serves as the board president for the National Grant Professional Certification Institute and is the president and CEO of ASIL Grant Services. Julie does a really good job walking us through planning, writing, and submitting federal grants. And this seems like an especially relevant topic right now with a new president coming into the White House. So for the first portion of this episode, we're going to hear Julie present, and then we end with a quick Q&A. Enjoy. Every time there is a new president, there is uncertainty around grants. And there's so much focused on what will the president choose to emphasize in their budget. But the reality is, is that the budgeting process at the federal level starts long before the new year. Starting in July, the Office of Management and Budget gives guidance to federal agencies about the levels of funding and priorities for the coming year. They work, those individuals then work within those guidelines to structure a budget proposal. Now, in a perfect timeline, uh, the new president, whoever it is, speaks about their proposal in their, uh, in their priorities in the State of the Union, um, and then budget request is submitted to Congress, typically around the first Monday in February. If there's a change in parties, some of these priorities can be dramatically different or frankly, even completely opposite. Now, about 6% of the federal workforce typically leaves government in the first years of a new administration. And that number tends to climb in the highest ranks of civil service. Nearly 10% of the senior executive service employees leave, leave in the first year after a new president is sworn into office. That is up from, you know, maybe 8% on an average year. So really not that much different. Departure rate typically is higher at agencies where the mission might stand in contrast with the party that holds the White House. But remember, there's a whole nother branch involved, okay? So once the president has made their proposal of a budget, it enters the legislative process. The House and Senate develop their own budget resolutions to set spending levels. Then the House and Senate appropriation committees, through their 12 subcommittees, hold hearings to examine the budget requests and needs of the federal spending programs. The House and Senate then produce appropriation bills to fund the federal government. These bills are amended as needed, approved by the committees, and sent to the full floor, where they may get additional amendments before they're passed. Most bills don't match exactly between the Senate and the House, so the two chambers have to negotiate a middle ground. Then each chamber must pass the, re the reconciliation, and it goes to the president to either sign or veto it. Now. Technically, this is supposed to happen before October 1. This presentation is being given in September of 2020, and if you take a look, we're nowhere close to having a budget ready to pass. So if this doesn't happen before October 1, one of two things happen. A continuing resolution is passed, or the federal government is shut down. Okay. While there's been a lot of talk about what the priorities may be of an incoming new administration or of the current administration continuing on, the, these comments can actually cause a backlash. So, for example, when our current president was elected four years ago, there was chatter about um, increasing or decreasing certain programs. So for example, the 21st Century Community Learning Center program was marked for elimination within the Department of Education. It had a huge backlash across the country and Congress stepped in and actually increased funding for that program. 
um, similar effects happened at the National Institute of Health as well. The most dramatic many people would consider was the NEA. The NEA was actually proposed to be eliminated as a department and instead steady funding has continued under our current administration. The reality is, is that social media is changing the way constituents influence legislators. Major new money is coming to address things like mental health, violence, and substance abuse. And it isn't all coming through agencies like SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There's actually money coming through now from places like the Department of Justice, um, as well as the National Institute of Health and the Centers for Disease Control, and some even through the Department of Education. The reality is, is that while COVID is the current discussion point, school shootings and suicide and the opioid epidemic were all major uh, discussions being taken place uh, across the country that were influencing recent uh, decisions about funding. Now, concerns about major spending cuts proposed by the executive branch, many people have said have been overblown, mostly due to legislative control over the budget and the appropriation process. This, of course, is always um, more affected by whether we have one party in both the executive branch as well as one or two of the legislative branches. If the legislative branches <clears throat> are controlled by one party, um, we either see, that is when we're most likely to see significant increases or decreases in the budget. Now, there was a bill that was passed in 2018 that allowed for a modest to significant increase across the board um, to a lot of funding uh, area, to a lot of agencies. There was a significant increase to defense, but there were still increases to non-defense domestic appropriations by $33 billion. The reality is, is that a lot of the tightening that happened in around 2008 and 2009 that um, happened during the economic downturn, those things were then rolled back in uh, 2013, 2014, and especially in 2018. Many people um, saying they've now surpassed uh, all of the previous budgets. So as we go into this election cycle, as grant professionals, we really need to take a look and say, um, pass, look, take a look past the rhetoric, all the things that people are saying, and really say, what bills are being passed and how can we influence them? And for, for us as grant professionals and the agencies that we work with, we have the opportunity to make our voices heard um, even without lobbying. So once you see what money is out there um, and you say, hey, this, this is a bill, I, I'm interested in this topic, the next question becomes, how do I actually find out what grants are available? So there's a great free website out there. Don't let anybody tell you that, that you have to pay any money to research federal grants. There's a free website called grants.gov. And more and more departments are now utilizing this website to post not only their current grants, but also posting forecasted grants. And uh, I love these. I'm a huge advocate of letting us know what's coming because then agencies can put together high quality proposals. Most notably, the Department of Health and Human Services, who had a very robust website that they used to post things on, are now doing a lot of forecasting on grants.gov. And in fact, in the last two to three weeks, they've put out significant numbers of grants that they may not even be officially opening up until February or March of next year. Also new to grants.gov is the creation of a username and password, which allows you to, serve your, uh, to save your searches by search terms. 
Now, what this means is that if you're commonly going out to grants.gov and you're looking up searches using the same terms over and over again, you can shorten this time by saving your search and simply running the search with the same search terms at another time. You can also download your search um, when you have what you need. You can save the search as an Excel file. Technically, it comes as a comma-separated uh, value file that you want to save as Excel. That'll allow you to examine the details of the search, add columns, appropriate, maybe you want to do some quality matching on your own tied to your agency. And then maybe you found a grant that you think might be a good fit. You can email these opportunities to members of your staff while you're on the website, and other new features include a mobile app. The era of being able to submit a grant from your cell phone is technically here. If you haven't signed up for an email of opportunities from your most likely grant matches, now's a great time. You can go, you can check out what's new, and there's some great webinars, short video clips, there's a blog, and if you're on Twitter, they even provide tips there. Hashtag learn grants. Now, if there are any questions, we'll take kind of this, have this be our first question and answer session, but while people are answering our third and final poll for today, how many different federal agencies is your organization interested in? Jennifer, are there any questions so far? Uh, yeah, Julie. Do you have any insight on chatter or, you know, things that are going around about how the federal grant landscape might be changing and reprioritizing in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? And that might be a loaded question, I understand. <laughs> it's a little bit of a loaded <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, so there were a lot of grants that came out of um, the, most of them came out of the CARES Act in March, but there's a lot of questions and we are pretty sure that, um, especially if there's a significant change in the legislature or the executive branch, that we may see significant um, impact on, for example, the Department of Education dollars. Um, we're seeing more telehealth teleeducation emphasis happening. Um, there are also um, some opportunities related to research happening um, with pandemics, but also emergency response. So those are all areas that have a tendency to kind of percolate up, pop up when um, a disaster hits. And I don't mean like a natural disaster, but in the same way, like school shootings influenced things, um, and we saw more money come out there. Um, when we also see domestic terrorism happen, we see more, or even international terrorism affecting a lot of U.S. Uh, citizens, we also will see a lot of organizations who say, um, well, we need to be pr more prepared uh, for an emergency response. And so uh, we expect to be uh, seeing more of that as well and how agencies can provide services in the middle of pandemics. Um, yeah, so that's probably the best answer to that one. So many people believe that federal grants are difficult and very different from foundation grants. I believe that anyone who's written a foundation grant that has specific RFP guidelines, you could write a federal grant. So let's talk about how foundation and federal grants are the same. As we've talked about researching federal grant opportunities earlier, you now know that you can search, you can research by search term, department, organizational eligibility, and type of opportunity. And the reality is, is that that's available on most major um, uh, databases as well. Like many foundations, submissions are almost exclusively online through grants.gov or another web portal. We're seeing that on foundations, more and more agencies are using um, fed, uh, portals to do their submission, including foundants. Also, like more and more foundation grants, many federal grants encourage partnerships. Here, they may even require it. And really with partnerships, you'll, you may see um, 
different, different levels of partnerships. We have a training related to partnerships that talks about um, how partnerships are kind of a continuum and, and being prepared for those types of partnerships uh, might be something that your organization is interested in doing um, before you apply for your first federal grant. Now, the most significant difference um, comes in, perhaps in the length of proposals. Unlike foundation grants, which many of them are one to five pages for most grants, realistically, some might even be in the, ten, the three to 10 range, many federal grants are in the six to 25 page range. That said, most of them are in the 10 to 20 page range. So you've got three to 10 for foundation and 10 to 20 for federal. There's a good deal of overlap there. Where the typical foundation grant will ask you for your 501c3, your audit, your 990 and letters of support as attachments, federal grants may also ask you for your staff's resumes or they call them CVs, curriculum vitas, or they may even use the phrase biographical sketches and give you a form that they want you to transfer a resume over to. Like our reference to um, partnerships earlier, they may ask for particular partnership agreements or MOUs, logic models, work plans, additional narratives in attachments, um, forms. All of these things contribute to the length of the proposal and, frankly, the time it takes for a proposal to get put together. And speaking of time, due to the length of the proposal and all of these attachments, it can take much longer to put a federal grant together. It's not uncommon for it to take 50 or 100 hours, or maybe even more. Then there is the record keeping after a grant is awarded. Now, while technically a foundation grant may allow you to be very general in your record keeping, more and more foundations are asking for record keeping that is specific to their dollars given. So when a grant is awarded, you're required to keep detailed time and effort for all of your staff listed on the grant, documentation of how the funding was expended, and document how the administration supported the grant effort. This is exactly the same as it is in a federal grant. So starting to build those processes within your organization really helps you move from being just grant ready to federal grant ready. Now, speaking of administration, some foundations pay for administrative costs, especially funders who provide operating grants, but most federal proposals pay for some kind of administrative costs. It may be called facilities and administration, or new regulations have a cost called de minimis for indirect costs. This allows nonprofits to kind of recoup maybe up to 10% of a grant's cost toward their administrative costs, even if they don't have what's called a negotiated indirect cost rate. This was a huge, huge win for nonprofits. So all of the work that goes along with supporting these federal grants um, from your CFO, other members of finance or purchasing, or your QA department, your quality assurance department, the people who track your data, um, all of these individuals including if you're a person who manages the grant for your organization, those can all be wrapped up in an indirect cost called de minimis, which is 10% for many federal agencies. But many people get kind of overwhelmed right at the beginning. They go to download an, a federal RFP. Even today, it's not uncommon for federal guidelines to be over 50 pages long. I still have projects where the guidelines are over 100 pages long, but thankfully some departments have started to pull out um, specific guidelines for a project which allow those guidelines to become shorter. This has come though with kind of a major condition, which is there's two documents that you have to keep track of instead of just one. That said, the, there's a primary document which tells you about the opportunity for which you're applying for. That's the one that's typically a little shorter. Then a second one which tells you about all the formatting and submission guidelines which are specific to that department. It is not uncommon for these to change right around January or in the summer. 
So for example, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, they each have like these proposal guideline documents. But if you write a lot of proposals for that department, it makes it a lot easier to remember what you need to do. And like the picture shown here, I tab a lot of those things. But if you're writing one or two federal grants a year and you're writing for different departments each time, frankly, it can be kind of annoying because you don't have one document to follow, but two. For example, um, the National Science Foundation has a document called the Proposal and Award Policies and Procedures Guide, P-A-P-P-G, that I call it for short. It's 181 pages long. And the current grant I'm writing for the NSF called the Robert Noyce Teacher Scholarship Program, it has a program solicitation that thankfully is only 18 pages long. So it's kind of a balance where NSF tells you not just all the things I need for writing the proposal, but to a certain degree, all those policies and procedures I need to manage the proposal on the back end. Now, for like any other grant, there are some certain basics that I always look for. Number one, what's the deadline? Heads up, there may be more than one. And then how many pages do I need to write? Because there's a big difference between being asked to write a 20-page double-spaced grant, a six-page single-spaced research grant, and a 75-page double-spaced grant. It's actually like the total package, not the narrative. Then there are 15-page single-spaced narratives plus attachments. It all seems kind of confusing at times. But the types of attachments can be pretty important if they aren't standard ones like abstract, budget narrative, biographical sketches, or resumes. Those are very common attachments that you'll see in RFPs. So the second thing I always look at is who can apply. Now, this might seem like a pretty straightforward question, but this is actually typically much broader or sometimes much more specific than a foundation grant. For example, you may see that any nonprofit at all can apply, whether they have a 501c3 or not. And then there are organizations who will say, well, we only want um, institutions of higher education who partners who partner with their state education um, department, or um, we want a mental health agency who's partnering with first responders. So it might have some flexibility on who's eligible to apply, but the required partnerships are an important aspect to look at as well. The third thing I always take a look at is um, about the money. How much can I apply for? Does it require a match? And what will the grant pay for? Now, matches are much more common as a requirement in a federal grant. And in federal grants, there are also a lot more stipulations as to what a grant may or may not pay for. Some grants are called implementation grants, where they expect you to implement a kind of an evidence-based program. Others are research grants, which they're trying to get you to create the next step in the evidence pathway. Speaking of evidence, um, the next thing I typically look at is what data do I need to report on and what data do I have to show to provide a high quality need statement? Now, to justify certain programs, the agencies may have shared data points um, that you will have to collect if you're awarded the grant. This allows them to provide a report to Congress on the impact of all the grants they've awarded from a particular solicitation. Um, I call these shared outcomes. But grants may also expect you to define your need in a particular way. For example, um, you may have to state what percentage of participants um, are below the federal poverty level. Or you may have to state what percentage of children receive free and reduced lunch which that started to change when the federal guidelines started to bring in community, um, the community definition. But if I work with a, a hospital or a mental health institution, there may be what's called health professional shortage areas or medically underserved areas. 
Um, there may be particular rural guidelines, like are they designated rural by the USDA or have um, a city or a county population less than a certain number by the most recent census or American Community Survey. So taking a look at what kind of data that you need to be able to collect, I think is incredibly important when I take a look at an RFP. Obviously then, I take a look at the activities. Does my agency have the capability? Do we have the capacity to do those activities? Or will we need to work with someone else? Too often, um, I think organizations kind of write off opportunities. They're like, oh, no, we don't do all of that, and so we're just not going to apply. Instead of partnering with other organizations to go after that and bring those dollars to the community as a whole. So um, then the question becomes, do you know someone in your community, or will you have to kind of reach out and find someone? Another question related to activities might be whether the grant requires an external evaluator or whether the, ex the evaluator really just has to be external to your project. Now, that can be confusing for some people, but if I'm implementing, uh, my department is implementing a given project, my QA person isn't involved in that implementation. They're simply involved in monitoring the activities that are happening. They're a great resource um, for doing evaluation. So you don't always have to reach out to an external evaluator with a federal grant. There are times though that the evaluator needs to be actually external to your institution or your organization. And uh, great resources for that may include um, taking a look at the evaluator association to see who might have that experience. The last thing, and certainly not the least thing that I take a look at when I look at an RFP, is trying to dig in and see what really is the funder's intention. This is honestly where a new administration can change how grants are being implemented, sometimes dramatically. For example, I wrote and was awarded um, some of the very first Carol White physical education grants that came out from the Department of Education lots of years before President Obama uh, took office. But once he took office, that RFP changed because his wife had influence on the solicitation and it added components about overall wellness and healthy eating that my original grants would not have been um, a good match for. So in my opinion, what makes most people shy away from federal grants is the level of detail and planning that have to go into a proposal. I love and respect people who can write a proposal to a funder in only one to three pages. They blend stories, they blend stats together, and they manage to tell a concise and compelling case for funding. But personally, I love the level of detail that go into a federal grant. That detail starts with the solicitation, but it's also implemented in every aspect of the planning and proposal process, and then should really be part of the implementation of the grant once it's funded. I frequently tell people that if you're not willing to track the need, the client demographics, the outcome, and the money in detail, federal grants are just simply not for you. But the reality is, is a lot more of our agencies are asking us to look at federal grants as an option. So how do you get started? Well, best practice would really have you planning your project based on the previous year's RFP before the next one is released. Unfortunately, when you have a change, a change in um, administration, there may be changes in new priorities, and there may be opportunities that come out, which there isn't a previous RFP for. So what should you do? Well, most federal grants come out about four to eight weeks before they're due. If a webinar is provided, it's not, not uncommon for that to come out two weeks into the application window. Now, if the organization wants to wait until after the webinar to decide whether to go for it, 
it can sometimes make it pretty tight. But good planning can make it all come together. So what I do is I start by creating a timeline with a submission deadline one full week in advance of the actual deadline. Is that necessary? Well, it depends. The reality is, is I've submitted many federal grants on the deadline, sometimes within one to three hours of the hard time deadline. It isn't fun. In fact, several departments will recommend that you submit a grant 48 hours in advance because if the system finds a technical error, you have the ability to fix it and resubmit. Of course, with Workspace these days, um, Workspace is this, the uh, online portal with grants.gov, it checks for a lot of these technical errors in advance uh, and some processes through NIH and NSF. So what I do is I have my hard deadline, my external deadline. Then one week before, I have my internal deadline and I make sure that all my attachments are due in final form no later than one week before that internal deadline. This includes letters of support, resumes, budgets, etc. Now, note that I'm saying attachments. You may also see the term appendices. To me, these are two different things. Appendices are frequently documents that have a lot of serious content that needs to be created. So they kind of get treated more like another section of the grant. Then I take the narrative and the appendix requirements apart. I tackle the biggest questions first or things that are going to have the biggest influence on my program design. Then I fill in details as I go. Every week, every meeting has an agenda and a content goal. I personally like to create logic models early on in the project so I know all the activities align with the goals and outcomes and the purpose of the funder. I get the participation of leadership, program, and budget from the beginning so there aren't any surprises later about a key activity being too expensive or leadership telling us halfway through a project, oh yeah, the board decided to strategically eliminate that program or activity in the next fiscal year. All that is to say that best practice really would have you planning your project based on the previous year's RFP before the next one's released. Now, I could present a full hour on how to write a federal grant, but here are some of the most talked about issues when writing a grant. One is writing style. Most writers use a formal style. Second, do you write in first person or third person? This can be a hotly contested um, item amongst grant professionals, but some agencies require third person. And there are some who believe that because a grant is still read by people, that first person provides a deeper connection to the reviewer. In addition, if you are looking for concise writing, a lot of times using first person will save you if you're tight on space. A third item is active voice that we recommend. This helps you be precise about who will do what. Passive voice might take less space, but it also may compromise clarity. Stories. While some people will say that statistics are key to federal grants, others will say that stories bring the humanity to the reviewer. I like to use stories after my statistics to say, here's my statistic, and for example, and I tell someone's story, okay? Now, if, when it comes time to submit a federal grant, I think that the new workspace is wonderful. I can tell you I was very nervous about switching because almost my entire career before workspace came out was writing federal grants with something they now call the legacy package. Made me feel pretty old, but having multiple people in the workspace working on different sections Having the ability to hook a consultant or an individual into a project but limit what pages they can edit is amazing. And having the ability to check for possible technical errors coded through grants.gov or specific to the agency make Workspace pretty comfortable to work around in. I also don't have to worry about it corrupting my entire package from a file that's too big. You do still have to make sure that you aren't uploading files that have viruses, but that's pretty straightforward. If you are considering applying for a federal grant, I suggest you get all your registrations done right away. Don't wait until an opportunity you're interested in is released. The System for Award Management called SAM is where all the vendors, including grant recipients, must register to do work in the federal government. Start early, okay? 
In addition, there's a relatively new change that the Department of Health and Human Services Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is now requiring something called ERA Commons. Okay, it's Electronic um, Research Administration uh, Commons Registration, where this used to be uh, required only by the National Institute for Health. Now you can learn about grant registrations by checking out a training on our website called Grant Registrations. Now, as we mentioned before, there are several key items which affect how much you really have to spend um, as you take a look at grants with indirect cost. So it's good to analyze these items right away so no one gets carried away spending money that really isn't there. So if your organization either has an indirect cost rate agreement or they expect to claim indirect costs through the de minimis rate, um, a grant that might be listed as a max of request for 500,000, you're already knocked down to about 454,000. If your grant requires a match, do you have to do that with cash or other documented funding? Or can you use things like your building or volunteer time? Does the agency have a limit on salaries or the contractor's daily rate? I've worked with cardiologists that can't charge their full $300,000 salary to a grant. Um, but contractors also can't charge more than a certain amount per hour and can't technically exceed over eight hours in a day. Other things to take a look at is whether your grant requires you to supplement your current cost instead of supplanting current dollars. So you can't just then move them around to do something else. This is especially sticky for education agencies. So the real question is, is a federal grant really more difficult to manage than a foundation grant? The answer is it kind of depends on how complicated your project is. For some federal grants, they're relatively simple projects. You're gonna to propose to implement something or you will research a particular method of doing things. The top things to remember are this, document your time. Are you spending time on activities that you said you would? Is it taking you longer than you said you would, okay? Second, document your activities and your outcomes. So what are you doing with your time and what impact are your activities having on the goals and objectives you set forth with your project? Document your expenditures. This could become sticky if you have a very general budget or a very kind of a summative budget justification. Good planning and budget justifications make it clear how you're gonna spend your money in advance. If you have partners you're working with to implement a grant, have them complete detailed reports of their time activities and outcome data in order to get their funds. Money is a great leverage to get the information you need to complete your reports. But the reality is, if you've received funding from a foundation that already has very specific guidelines of what needs to go in their proposal, a very specific budget form, and the, the types of questions they ask on the back end are, how, how well did you actually meet your outcomes? Did you spend the money the way you said you would? You're halfway there, more than halfway there, toward managing a federal grant. And I'm here to say, you can write a federal grant. Now, there are reasons to consider bringing in a consultant. The number one reason is that the usual person who writes grants for your agency is frankly already busy enough with a complete grant calendar or they're, if they're a development professional, maybe they're in the middle of special event planning. Not having adequate time to dedicate to the more complicated and detailed federal grant is definitely a risk. Some organizations want someone who know the funder or the specific solicitation. I personally think this is a learned skill and just like any other funder, you can get to know what they want. That said, I've been hired specifically for my knowledge and experience in particular um, uh, agencies. So, I recommend that if you want to start writing for the National Science Foundation or an agency at the Health and Human Services, check out their website, check out their priority. It, the beauty of government is transparency and accountability. The third thing is you might want to find a consultant who has deep levels of experience writing federal grants. Even if they aren't experts in your solicitation, they probably apply all their knowledge to um, particular situations and they've applied to so many different agencies, they know how to adapt uh, from one agency to the next. So next is really any questions. We went through a lot of material, 
So Jennifer, do you have some key questions that have percolated up? Yeah, we've got a lot of questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we will uh, all of them, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> some of them might require some follow-up. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on how we can influence legislation without lobbying? Yes, actually, there is a really great blog on our website that talks about advocacy. But one of the best things you can do as an agency is simply make your legislators aware of what you do. So start out by talking to them about the services you provide in their district. That allows them to, when something kind of percolates up, you to be able to, uh, them to be able to point to you and say, hey, I really do care about this issue. It really does impact my constituents. Or you have the opportunity to say to your legislators, um, when, when a major event happens, such as a school shooting, to say, hey, are you aware that we have this resource in your district? This allows them to open up and have a conversation with you about the services you provide. There is nothing against the law about education. And if you are talking about the services you provide and you're simply educating your, um, your legislators about that, there is nothing illegal about that. What happens is when you start saying, well, we think this should go in this bill, you start moving towards lobbying. Or we're applying for this grant, you should help us get it, that's lobbying. What isn't illegal is asking your, um, your, someone from your House of Representatives or your Senator to write a letter of support or to make them simply aware that you are applying for a grant. Just don't be surprised if on the back end, um, they contact you and say, hey, you're gonna get funded and I'd like to do a, a big announcement about my support of your project. Anything else? Yeah, um, can you talk about places other than grants.gov where you would look for upcoming federal opportunities? Um, if you really wanna dig in, you can dig into their websites, you can dig into the legislation itself, and then there are a variety of paid resources, but only um, there are some of them that uh, you have to be, um, a part of a particular group. So institutions of higher education or government entities have access to um, particular databases that are, are only specific to them and then they have to pay. Um, and that's, I think, the best way to, to, to maybe access ones that might be specific to your um, particular area of expertise. I'm still an advocate though of um, seeing on the grants.gov uh, website what are closed, not archived, but closed opportunities um, to see what happened in the previous year. Yeah, um, so just for planning purposes, what would you estimate a single FTE grant writer, how many federal grants do you think that they could manage? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so here's where you do some math, right? And this is, there's a big debate on this um, in, in kind of grant, big grant circles. Um, if you think about the fact that it's going to take you six weeks, if you think about the fact that it takes um, 50 to 100 hours to do a grant, sometimes 125, 150, especially if you're new. Um, it is, and, and let's say all you do is federal grants, okay? Let's, let's not talk about the fact that you might be a development professional who's trying to manage a whole lot of other development work. Um, I would tell you, like, doing more than one a month can be challenging, okay? Because with a six-week timeline, you're ending one while you're beginning another, okay? Especially if you're new of this, a dozen would be a lot, okay? Um, it is, if you're new, doing three to five would not be too crazy, though you might feel that way at the time. You will be crunched for time. The biggest challenge is the fact that the federal grant calendar doesn't really lay out that way. Sorry, but majority of federal grants come out between February or have deadlines between February and June. So they're starting to come out after the new federal 
fiscal year starts October 1. Uh, we see a lot of them start pick up in November, especially like HRSA, some Department of Ed. They'll be due um, around February-ish, and then there's a whole other set that kind of are due mostly into July and some into August, especially with the National Science Foundation. Research grants have deadlines all across the year, so that's helpful and crazy at the same time. Um, but it's not unusual for me to write between 10 to 20 of these a year, but that's a lot of work to do that. Um, and it's fairly unusual. And I've been writing federal grants since, well, probably 17 years now. So, Jennifer? Great. Um, so then, who should be involved in the federal grants process? In a perfect world, everyone. Um, no, really. Um, one is you have to have your organization leadership. It's got to be like your executive director, somebody in tune with your board so that you know strategically this is an alignment with services. I like to have um, a major decision maker, obviously within programs, um, and then a data person, right? Your QA, it might be, your data person might be a programs person. Um, I like somebody in budget. Sometimes they're like, oh, I'm too busy for that. And so sometimes it's your program person that creates your budget. Um, but those budget and um, da the data for your own agency, your outcomes, that kind of stuff, um, all of your demographics of who you serve, those types of things, those are key to building your proposal. And then I like to literally get sign off of my either someone on up the, up the chain going to an executive director. Um, if I'm working with an institution of higher education, it might be a dean, it might be a provost. Um, then I like to get the sign off of the CFO or they, they may have somebody, depending on how big your financial office is, might be somebody smaller than that. Um, QA from the outcomes perspective programs to say, yes, this is actually doable. This, this fits with what we are. No grant writer should be writing these grants in isolation. And the data and the finance and the leadership people need to be in at the beginning, especially finance. So often people wait to the last minute and finance is like, oh no, that's going to cost way more than that. And now you've got a hot mess on your hands. All right. So then um, kind of getting into a little bit of logistics. Mm -hmm. If you are having issues with SAM registrations or, um, you know, your cage code expired, that sort of thing, what can you do when it's been 30 plus days, you haven't heard anything and you want to apply? Um, what are some things you could do to escalate? Yeah, there's, there's a help desk and you need to make sure that on the, uh, through that help desk, you're getting a ticket number so that you can, um, I mean, literally you could call every day. I know people who call Sam every day. Um, if, if you have cage code is such a problem right now with Sam um, and they did a changeover and it's making a lot of people just go crazy, but you, it, you ought to be able to get it within two weeks, 10, with 10 days. Um, and so if it's, if you've hit the 30 day mark, you absolutely need to be calling and calling and calling. And if you, um, if they seem to be giving you the runaround, like the most, like really running you around, call your legislator. This is where having a good relationship, having them aware of who you are, that you are coming after federal money, it can help you. Julie, do you mind discussing supplement versus supplant a little bit more in depth? We have a few requests for that. Yeah, it is a com it is a complicated concept um, and I might recommend that people reach out and and uh, take a look at one of our budget trainings I'll talk a little bit a little bit more but if you're still confused uh, we have two budget trainings on our website that might be allow you to get a little bit more in depth with it so to supplement means here's my agency's budget now I'm asking for a grant and I'm going to add more money to my budget for new services. I'm supplementing the what's already there. What we're finding right now, though, is that some people want, well, 
some people want to do this all the time. I talk to people all the time. They want to supplant, which is like a shell game to say, well, in our budget, we said that this revenue was going to, um, maybe this operational foundation grant was going to cover this particular service. But we found a federal grant that can do that. So can we apply for that federal grant and move it in here and then use these dollars for something else? Because these are just operational dollars. That is supplanting. It's changing your plan of how you are going to do this. Now, if you're using open discretionary dollars um, uh, that haven't been designated for anything, uh, so for example, if you have a, a fundraiser, right, and they're, they're non-designated dollars, you can use that that does not count as supplanting. All right. Um, so many questions. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> is there a good resource to see what money goes unclaimed, unspent, unawarded? I'm not really sure about that. The reality is, is that um, very little dollars are unawarded. Uh -huh. I would say basically none, right? Um, what occasionally happens is you will see dollars, and we saw this a little bit this last spring, where dollars get moved forward into the next fiscal year. So mm -hmm. um, Jennifer, I, maybe you can remember what the name of the grant was. It was Department of Justice, if I remember correctly, right? Um, um, I know the USDA uh, DLT moved yeah, some funds forward this year. Learning and telemedicine grant. Ironically, last year, they didn't spend all of their money mm -hmm. um, on a particular government round and they moved it forward to this year and they actually ran two competitions. One that was the budgeted amount plus the amount from the previous year, which is most of the time what happens. But then more money got dumped into that because of the CARES Act and so they ran a second round. That, and that's pretty unusual, but we do occasionally see um, basically money folded over from one into the other. There isn't, you could through um, Freedom of Information Act, you could FOIA that, um, but um, I would be careful doing that because sometimes you can aggravate program officers when you do that. Mm -hmm. So have a very good reason to do it. And then in general, do you feel like most um, agencies are pretty transparent about how many people applied, like their uh, award rate <laughs> from previous years? I know that might depend. <laughs> Um, transparent about how many people applied? No. Um, are they transparent about who is awarded? Yes. They, they pretty much have to be for that these days. And some agencies are pretty transparent. Department of Education, they make whole entire grants available and say these are our awarded grants. This is public information. You can have it. Your budget isn't always, um, you know, available, but there are great opportunities. But I will say that, the, for example, the Centers for Disease Control is not that open. And I even went the, 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 um, the route of FOIA because we had, we did a grant, we got a pretty high score and we still weren't funded. So we asked for comments, which typically is not too bad. You can get your comments, but they really had no comments. They're like, well, this is just your score. And I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. I didn't say that part, of course, but um but then we said, okay, can you tell us what the cut score was for funding? Like, how close were we? Oh, no, we can't provide you any scores. Well, can you tell us what the top score was? No, no, we can't tell you that. And so they finally broke down and they gave me a list of, like, the people who were funded, because it wasn't on their website. They broke down and told me a list of people who were funded and the order of the people in their rank of highest to lowest, but I still didn't get the scores. So typically if you don't get funded, you can simply request your comments. And most people are pretty open. You might have to pay a fee for it because uh, they're sending it to you. Though a lot of times nowadays it's just electronic. I've been going, I've done this so long that you used to get like written comments sent to you. <laughs> um, and so they may charge you for it. Uh, same thing with Freedom of Information Act. They may charge you for any request that you put forward. Some agencies, you can ask for a successfully funded grant. Um, and some will say, yeah, we do that. Here you go. Others will say, we don't do that. Um, so, I mean, those are all alternatives to, to that. Mm -hmm. That answers another question that was out there is, can you mm -hmm. view 
previous awardees and their applications from the previous year or the ones that if you didn't get it, who did get it? Yeah, in general, some departments are really, really good about that and almost in an overwhelming way. Um, One of my other federal trainings, we talk much more in depth about this, but um, it's the National Science Foundation. They literally have like the name of the agency, the name of the PI, the name of the grant, the summary of the grant, the amount awarded. Like it's in a giant database and you can go back for a long time. Um, So if I'm applying to an NSF grant that I don't know that much about, um, because I have a lot of NSF experience, but I might have a particular solicitation that's new to me. um, I reach out and I, I go out to that database and say, oh, hey, how do I, you know, who, who, who do I know, right? Maybe it's an institution because I know grant writers from all over the country. Um, maybe I know somebody at that institution and I can get a copy that way, which may be faster, honestly, yeah. than FOIA. FOIA can sometimes take a really yeah. short and so can take six months, which does not help you always. Though this is a great time to be doing that kind of work because um, if the grant doesn't come out or isn't going to be due till May or later next year, asking FOIA now is a great idea. Well, don't in, don't invoke FOIA unless you have to, or a copy. I'm kind of irritated with people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Some agencies do about FOIA. CDC is one of them, um, and so you know you kind of feel your way through that. Julie, can you um, sort of get some general maybe thresholds like what um, a newer organization might want to take into consideration? if they are trying to decide if they are ready to pursue a federal grant. So like how big should they be? What should their budget be? That Oh, what should the, their budget be? So the reality is, is that if you have a five figure budget, you should be a partner on a federal grant. You shouldn't be going after one yourself, right? If you're below a hundred thousand dollars a year, if you're a six figure agency, and you're applying for a six-figure grant, be careful, right? So if I'm a $750,000 year agency, I'm really relatively $750,000 up to almost a million, um, and I'm going to ask for $100,000, that's not crazy, right? Um, But really, once you get above a million, um, it's kind of the same status, right? So if I'm uh, a million to three million, five million, kind of that million to five million range, I can almost apply to just about anything, except make sure that nothing you're applying for will literally double your budget, right? Or be more than your current budget. Now, I actually had this happen. Um, I had an agency which provided home visitation services for families at the early childhood level, and they went after early Head Start. And if you know anything about early Head Start, which we're experts in, um, that's a huge grant. Head Start, early Head Start, they're huge grants. And they basically, like, they went from a budget of, you know, two million, and they brought in a budget of a million. So they'd be, like... 50% of their operating, they actually applied for. So now they're a $3 million organization. So that kind of gives you some perspective. Um, I would tell you if you're going after a multi-year grant, don't take a look at so much what's the total grant amount as like what's the annual grant amount when you do that kind of comparison. That's a really good question. Whoever gave that question is a really good question. Because I'm a big advocate of small organizations getting into the federal grant space, but it's, I think a great way to do that is to be a partner. So mm-hmm. I feel very passionately about partnerships too. So, um, Are we trying to end this at 1215 or I don't, I mean, we, we, we could keep talking. How long, do we want, how long can you go? To- <laughs> Well, if you have time, I want to respect your time. So maybe grab one or two more of, of the top ones we haven't hit, but um, let's go ahead and, and wrap it up after that. So we can let and you know. And again, we'll put these out on the community. We'll put yeah. mm-hmm. out on the community for people. So go, now's the time to go out there and get your, get your information set up so that you can see what else is out there. Go ahead. Um, so, We've got a, an upvoted question about 
why is it that some or like it seems like we get some RF RFPs about three weeks before the deadline? <laughs> because you're probably not getting them through grants.gov. What's happening, uh, and we do this for some of the organizations we work with, on a weekly basis, we go through grants.gov and we pull down what's come out in the last week. The problem is, is that if they only, if it only came out at four weeks, and um, say it came out on Monday, um, but you already, you looked on Sunday, better example, it comes out on Tuesday, you look on Mondays, you won't see it till the following Tuesday, right? And so you've already lost a week. So um, I will tell you that like in those spring uh, layers, it, uh, those spring months, it's really important to be out there often, especially like there are certain grants we go out there because we know they should be coming out any day. And we check, you know, every few days just for those grants. Um, so, but really, I believe it is at this point, um, there, there have been some exceptions with the CARES Act money where you've gotten one to two weeks, but the standard budget should be four to six. I won't we, apologize for the federal government because I can control. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked earlier about how you recommend that smaller organizations with five-figure budget orgs should in, uh, be part of a or go for opportunities as a partner. Yeah. So can you talk more about how you would define a partnership and how some things that you might need to consider if you are considering entering into a partnership? Again, loaded question. Yeah. I'm a big advocate of legal MOUs. Some people aren't advocates of them because they don't want to pay the legal fee to do an MOU. Um, but I, if you have a grant opportunity that you think is amazing, but you're a smaller organization, you probably aren't going to be able to tackle all of the services yourself, or you feel like you don't have experience and you might not be competitive as a small organization. Or some small organizations are concerned about managing it. Um, they, they feel like they've got good services, but either they have a, a smaller or weaker finance or um, outcomes side of things, right? Tracking. So purposefully reaching out to an organization which you know cannot do it all themselves either. The problem, of course, with reaching out with organizations can be that you're basically giving that other organization a heads up, and if they can do it themselves, they may do it themselves. But if you reach out to an organization you know can't do it either, you start being able to bring this together. So things to keep in mind is, who is the applicant? How is data shared? How is money shared? And, um, and going in to say, hey, I'm responsible for a third of the outcomes, I should get a third of the money. Um, in addition, if you're the grant professional at the smaller organization, for example, um, try, try to have influence on the writing of the grant. Don't let the larger organization just write it on their own. Be in those meetings. Be in there about influencing the design. Don't just say, well, we want to be a partner. We want to, you know, get a piece of the pie, a little contract out of this, which has its benefits. Don't get me wrong. But if you really are worried about the design being, the project design, you can cut it out. Say, hey, let's do weekly meetings. We want to participate. Our grant writer can help you pull data. Our finance people can help you, you know, be, be collaborative. Add, add resource to the opportunity because most grant professionals are not going to turn that down. I think that was your last question, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much again, Julie, Jennifer, and, and Rosie as well. And uh, we really thank you uh, for joining us today. And Julie, if you have any summary or last bit of advice to leave people with uh, as we close, um, I, I want to wish everybody the best success. And, and uh, I, I love your advice that you've shared here. So go ahead and uh, chime in with what uh, your parting words are, and then we'll let people uh, get back to, to looking for funding. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that you can do it. That's, that's <laughs> my, 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 my takeaway. You know, I cut my teeth on federal grants. When I got, get, got into the grant space, I, this is what I did. One of the very first grants I ever wrote was writing a federal grant. Try. What harm is there in trying? Um, and some people will say, well, it's time. It's money. It's my time. It's my you know, organization's time. Yeah. But 
you will never get the money if you don't apply for it. You know, the you can't win if you don't play philosophy, right? Um, and even if you get declined, ask for comments. And the federal government is more likely to do that than any foundation you work with. Um, and, and I learned so much by being able to do that. There were a lot of great questions and so that was our potentially some new ideas to try out. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can look for announcements on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn by following Foundin Technologies. And we want to hear from you. Unlike a lot of podcasts out there, you can participate yourself by registering for one of our Coffee Talk webinars. You can register for a webinar or access additional resources by clicking on the links in the episode notes. So from everyone at Founded Technologies, thanks for listening. We hope you found it helpful, and we can't wait to connect with you again on our next Coffee Talk.